Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to the Fabulously Keto Podcast. This is episode 100. (laughs) Jackie, who would have thought all that time ago, sitting in a cafe at Chelmsford, and I said, Jackie, you should really start a podcast. And here we are, episode number 100. Yeah, who'd have thought it? And lots of podcasts don't get this far. They don't. And I think this is a great shout out, not only to Jackie for her her vision and her tenacity, her resilience, her absolute sheer hard work in pulling this together. But I really wanted to give a shout out to all of those people that have been so generous in helping Jackie to get to really where where she is today. So I know Joe Dodds, so shout out to Joe. Our good friend Daisy Brackenhall, who you know really we um, you know really gave a lot of guidance and um, production information, and just you know generally, of course, the listeners. You know we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for you out there, mm. and for all our guests, because if we didn't have anyone to chat to, we wouldn't we wouldn't be doing this, would we? I was getting to them. Okay. Sorry. Okay. No worries. (laughs) So, but it wouldn't be. I mean, I really wanted to say behind every great guest is obviously, you know, the great, you know, podcast producer. So, um, yes, you're absolutely right. And I think we have been so fortunate to have the podcast guests that have been absolutely wonderfully generous with their time. And, you know, we've been, we've had doctors, you know, other health professionals, we've had, you know, the patient lived experience, which has been so fundamental in really being able to share, um, share their journeys, their respective journeys. Yeah. Yeah. Really grateful for everyone's time. So I think it's only fitting, you know, when we're having an anniversary such as, you know, you know, episode number 100, that we have an extra special guest. And Jackie and I were just, you know, having a bit of a giggle that we've, you know, we asked this guest almost, what, two years ago? Yeah, it was exactly two years ago. To come on to the show. And this was obviously we were lining them up to, to be for the, you know, episode number one. But, dear listeners, some things are worth waiting for. Um, such as two years, to be able to get our extra special guest, Dr. Asim Mahotra, today. Yeah, very exciting. 
Now, many of you in the low-carb keto um, circles will obviously know how instrumental he has been as a sort of a public health educator, you know, and advocate for obviously dietary, um, dietary reform, dietary changes, and particularly as an advocate, educator, and also um, author, you know, he's been really, you know, gathered some traction and particularly in his role, Jackie, um, you know, in the public health collaboration. Yes, and now he's the chair of the PHC UK, which is fantastic because he's really pushing the agenda forward of public health and and bringing awareness to public health and that we can do things about our own health. Um, So I think that's fantastic. But I think, you know, being such a public profile person as he is in his advocacy and education role, you know, it's it's really good because he's well connected, obviously, to um, we... We heard later on how instrumental he was in really supporting Tom Watson, a member of the UK Parliament, you know, in, in, you know, obviously losing weight and really, you know, transforming and really being a voice for, um, you know, restricting carbohydrates therapeutically in the management of diabetes. Mm. Yeah, and and being more aware of the, you know, what sugar is doing the soda drinks and all the sugar products, uh, what they, that is doing to our health. I think he's been quite instrumental in making the government take action, really, because we now, we here in the UK, we now have a sugar tax. Oh, okay. So that, that must be something after I've obviously, um, when I, after I left the UK. But I also think that he's been quite instrumental in being a, interventional cardiologist as we'll hear like you know um his role in your uh universal healthcare system the nhs you know things like the you know mcdonald's being close on the on the hospital campuses i think that those sorts of things he's been calling out and that's really again about his public health advocacy role Mm, yeah absolutely so jackie why don't you tell us a bit more about um asim for those that don't know him Dr. Asim Mahotra is an NHS-trained consultant cardiologist, fellow of the Royal College of Physicians and president, not Chair Louise, president, of the Public Health Collaboration. He's a world-renowned expert in the prevention, diagnosis and management of heart disease. He is honorary council member to the Metabolic Psychiatric Clinic at Stanford University School of Medicine, California, He's a founding member of Action on Sugar and was the lead campaigner highlighting the harm caused by excess sugar consumption in the UK, particularly its role in type 2 diabetes and obesity. In 2015, he helped coordinate the Choosing Wisely campaign by the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges as lead author in an BMJ paper to highlight the risks of overuse of medical treatments. In the same year, he became the youngest member to be appointed to the Board of Trustees of UK Health Think Tank, the King's Fund that advises government on health policy. Asim is a frequent expert commentator in print and broadcast media and has written scores of articles for a number of publications, in, including the BMJ, British Journal of Sports Medicine, BMJ Open Heart, JAMA Internal Medicine, 
Prescriber, The Pharmaceutical Journal, European Scientist, The Guardian and The Observer, BBC Online, Huffington Post, The Daily Mirror, The Daily Mail, The Daily Telegraph and The Washington Post. He's an international guest editor of the Journal of Evidence-Based Healthcare. Asim has appeared in the Health Service Journal's list of top 50 BME pioneers and has won a number of awards for his work to raise awareness of diet-related illness, both in the UK and internationally. He is a pioneer of the lifestyle medicine movement in the UK and has featured articles written about him in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Telegraph and Healthcare Leader. In 2018, he was ranked by software company Onalytica as the number one doctor in the world influencing obesity thinking. In 2016, he was named the Sunday Times de Brett's list as one of the most influential people in science and medicine in the UK in a list that included Professor Stephen Hawking. His total outmetric score, which is a measure of impact and reach of his medical journal publication since 2013, is over 10,000, making it one of the highest in the world for a clinical doctor during this period. His first book, co-authored with Donald O'Neill, The Piopi Diet, has become an international bestseller. His second book, The 20-Day Immunity Plan, is a Sunday Times bestseller. His recently published third book, A Statin-Free Life, is already a bestseller. Award-winning American science journalist Gary Taubes describes the scene as someone who has probably done more in the UK to inject sanity into nutrition science and the pharmaceutical industry debate than any human being alive. Sir Richard Thompson, past president of the Royal College of Physicians and former personal physician to Her Majesty the Queen, said Dr. Asim Mahotra is changing the face of medicine and his revolutionary book, The Piopi Diet, should be read by everyone. Let's hear from Dr. Asim. Welcome, Asim, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Delighted to join you, Jackie. And for our listeners, you, you've come, you've arranged this especially to be with us for our hundredth episode. And yeah, it's an honour. Actually, thank you. thank you, thank you for inviting me for this, <laughs> and congratulations on reaching hundred episodes. That's brilliant. Thank you. And uh, we always start with, where in the world are you? I am currently uh, at my um, residence in North London, in Hampstead, North London. Excellent. So, where are we going to start, Louise? You're you're joining us today. I am. And it's such an honour. And I think, you know, for me, because obviously Jackie and I, you know, we're here with the Fabulous Keto podcast to advocate for, you know, our well-being of, of our listeners. But really, as an interventional cardiologist, to seem, well, sorry, Dr. Seem, um, you know, you, through your work in the PHC UK, your work as an interventional cardiologist, you are the advocate. So why don't you tell us your story about how you got into, I suppose, you know, the work that you've been doing in the community as an advocate? Yeah, sure. Thank you, um, Louise. Yeah, it's uh, it's been an interesting journey. I mean, first and foremost, you know, I am a clinical doctor. My, my primary responsibility, my duty, my vocation is around medicine and to my patients. And um, I qualified uh, from Edinburgh Medical School in 2001. So I've been a, a qualified doctor now for, um, you know, over, well over 20 years. And I chose, in fact, I, I always wanted to be a cardiologist. 
And that was partly inspired by um, the death of my brother uh, when I was 11 years old. He he was 13 and he died quite suddenly after developing an infection, just a viral infection. And ultimately it was, it was viral myocarditis that killed him. And then I had a grandfather as well who had an, a rare heart condition that, that killed him in his, you know, he died unfortunately when he was 60, even though he was a very fit man, it's called amyloidosis. So there was an initial interest there. I was always interested in, um, in science um, and biology in particular when I was at school. But I also, and this is relevant to the kind of work I do now, I also was very interested and, and good at, I did very well in history. Um, so I was, I had kind of a breadth of uh, interest in, in subjects which were around medicine, but also even law as well. And then once I was at medical school, you know, I obviously, uh, cardiology, you know, was, was there as an interest for most of even my, I would say, um, my late teenage years. But it then became solidified when I was in medical school. And of course, heart disease is one of the biggest killers in the Western world, and we hadn't curbed it and tackled it properly. So that was another area of interest. I wanted to contribute back to society to do something about that, you know, give my, um, you know, have a role to play in that. And within cardiology, there are lots of different subspecialities. And I chose to go down the route of interventional cardiology, which for people that don't know what that is, it's essentially a form of keyhole heart surgery, if you like. So putting in stents, treating people with acute heart attacks. And I did that for most of my early career. I mean, I, I was fully trained as an interventional cardiologist. But then I realized that actually there was a much bigger area that I wanted to focus my efforts in, which I thought would have a bigger impact on helping people, which was around prevention. You know, um, rather than saving people from drowning and rather they didn't fall in the river in the first place. Mm. And in, in that process, I then started investigating to try and understand what was driving this increasing burden of chronic disease, obesity epidemic, which the World Health Organization announced as being a global issue in 2004. And also, why had we not curbed it? Why was it still, why was it getting worse? And it's still getting worse. And, and once I understood that, you know, once um, I was privy to the evidence uh, and even accepting and understanding that a lot of what people believe around their health, around their health decisions, whether it's about exercise, whether about what they eat, was was based upon very shaky or fatally flawed scientific evidence, fueled by very powerful vested interests, whether it's a food industry or the drug industry. I realized that you know I wanted to try and highlight those flaws, shift the paradigm in understanding what we need to be doing really to improve our health both for individuals and across the population. And then I've become an advocate for that movement. Uh, and, and to do that, um, you know, I've, I've used various mechanisms. I think first and foremost, for me, I started off as a, as a writer. So I was writing articles. I mean, this, this even emanated from my school days. I was, um, our school newspaper, the school I went to, I'm going to, sorry, a bit of a name drop here. It's what it, I still think it's the best school in the world. And I'm very proud of my school. It's called Manchester Grammar School. In fact, our motto, the motto of my school uh, in Latin is sapere aude, which means dare to be wise. Mm. Think, and, and, I, and it really only hit me what that meant only a few years ago. You know, it takes courage to be wise, to really, well, also to act on that wisdom as well. Once you realize what's really going on, it takes courage. So that's what really that, that motto meant. Um, but I wrote for the school newspaper and our school newspaper uh, got the National news, you know, School Newspaper of the Year Award in the UK. Uh, and I wrote a, a, an article in their winning issue. So I had this knack a little bit for writing, which I think I developed from my dad to some degree. He was a prolific writer, my father, who's a, a GP. And uh, and then, you know, through my writing, it was really highlighting these problems, but with the underlying 
notion, if you like, or theme of how do we change things while we make the injustice visible? Mm. Because most people want to do the right thing. So for me, that making the injustice visible actually was inspired by uh, Mahatma Gandhi. And uh, that's really at the heart of my advocacy. But the key thing here is, of course, you know, there are lots of components that are very important to making change happen. One is you have to make sure that what you're saying is concrete and as robust as it can possibly be, make the argument for that. And then you have to make sure that that information is disseminated. I write not for the purposes of getting published, but because I think there's something there's something important I wish to say and I want everybody to know about it. Yeah. It comes from a place of, you know, ultimately doing my bit to relieve human suffering. And, uh, and, and again, you know, nature or nurture, I don't know. Both my parents were, you know, and sadly they passed away prematurely, both of them. Um, but um, they were extremely compassionate human beings. And, uh, and I think, I hope a lot of that rubbed off on me. Um, and, uh, and, and that's really, that's really the core of my character, I think, is to try and relieve human suffering. And of course, understanding as well. And I've been through a lot of trials and tribulations over, my, uh, over the last 10 years in this advocacy work. It is not easy and you have to be prepared to take some hits. Um, there's a chap called Simon Chapman, mm. who's a professor of psychology, mm. uh, in, uh, Australia, um, Louise is nodding her head. She, I'm sure she's mm. aware of him, but he was considered one of the leading figures in bringing back tobacco control in the in, mm. the, in Australia. Mm. And he talks, there's a great paper people can read about um, uh, lessons in public health adv- adv- advocacy, his 38-year career. And uh, and one of the one of his points is um, in, in that movement is that unless, um, as soon as your work threatens an industry or an ideological cabal, you will be attacked, sometimes unrelentingly and viciously. And uh, but one of the other things he says is that public advocacy, getting something into the mainstream and even use of social media to some degree, but more importantly, mainstream media has a much bigger impact than private advocacy, because sunlight for the people that need to make the changes, uh, the policymakers that need to, you know, um, uh, the people that control regulations or the people that are ultimately going to have a big role to play in improving population health. Sunlight is a very powerful disinfectant for malodorous health policy. So, you know, it means making yourself very exposed, but for me, for the prime purposes of improving population health and doing greater good for my patients. Um, And yeah, it's a challenge, but it's meaningful. Yeah. I mean, when we were at the, so um, Dr. Seam and I were at the PHC conference, Nina Teichops was there and she was talking about the people that are standing up against big food and big pharma um, are being silenced and ridiculed do you find that and also i i worry about about your life per se do are you are you worried that they might bump you off no i'm not worried about it jackie because you've only got one life you've got to live it to the best that you can and um i think that um i mean even rationally i think bumping me off isn't actually in their best interest even from their perspective because i'm already out there so uh the, if what, and this is what they've tried to do, so I'm not giving them any ammunition, but what, what the, the tactics from their perspective, when I talk about them, I'm talking about the big, powerful vested interests that profit from deceiving people, really, and, and in, in, in pursuit of their private profit are harming people, um, is to attack you know, myself or other people's credibility. But actually, that's part of, the, of their corporate framework playbook strategy. I don't know if you were there for my talk, Jackie, but I talked yeah, about this how the way the corporations exert their power 
and one of the things they do is called you know extra legal um, uh, practices of that power is opposition fragmentation, and what that means is undermining the credibility of public health advocates, getting them deplatformed. So that's exactly part and parcel of what they do. So I'm very much aware of it. And it's important other people are aware of it too, because they they can manipulate even certain allies that you've got. I mean, I've had this throughout my career. Even people who have been my allies have have been tainted, if you like, at stages, or, or they've tried to taint those allies who've supported me in my work. Um, un, un, unbeknown to them, the, the roots of the of who's influencing them or trying to say undermine my credibility or say what I see Mahotra saying is wrong or you shouldn't support him or whatever else. They, they, they are not fully aware that the roots of it are literally just it's 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 corporate power. Uh, one example of this is, as you know, just to, as you brought it up on the Sunday Times. I mean, I thought this is a good way actually to expose this and, and make those some of those people look bad. Um, as in that's what the Sunday Times journalists felt uh, basically uh, did a story uh, on the back of the fact that I had helped. For, well, the background was I had helped. Um, the then deputy leader of the Labour Party, Tom Watson, to lose 100 pounds. Mm-hmm. And, and he did it because he read my book, my first book, The Piopi Diet. And I didn't know Tom. I mean, as in, we didn't have any personal relationship at that point, you know. Uh, and then he contacted me out of the blue through Twitter about a year after he'd lost weight, saying, by the way, I want to let you know, I've lost all this weight. I'm following your diet plan. And uh, I want to talk about it soon. I was like, wow, that's great. You know, congratulations. And, and thank you for getting in touch. And what happened was... Um, before when my book was launched and penguin who were the the publisher they were very excited in fact they they'd not done this before as far as aware but they they were so excited about the book and the potential it had and i co-authored it with donald o'neill um they organized the launch of the book from their from penguin headquarters from the rooftop penguin headquarters and we invite lots of people and many and people many people don't know this so what i'm sharing with you is new um, and they sent out a press release to get, you know, more attention and media attention. It got, got, got good media attention anyway, but they wanted to just maximize it. And in that process, behind the scenes, when the press release went out, and normally press releases are embargoed for a couple of days, there were people behind the scenes that were trying to undermine the book, were going, trying to gate crash uninvited to the actual launch. And actually, I don't want to name them, but there were some very powerful people. Yeah. and try and undermine the credibility of the book. And Penguin were like, what the hell's going on here? And I said, well, you've got to understand, this is going against the so-called dietary guidelines because it was you know, promoting low carb. And there are a lot of very powerful vest interests that support those guidelines, especially the food industry. And then they have their so-called scientists that are funded by them that people don't know are funded by them and are in powerful positions. So that was one thing that happened. But then what happened after it is um, the chief, and this is public knowledge, the chief executive of Public Health England, a, a government body, um, Duncan Selby actually contacted um, a couple of the people who are very prominent, um, respected people who endorse a book. One was the mayor of Manchester, Andy Burnham, and the other one was the most important doctor in the UK, arguably, the chair of the medical Royal colleges, um, Professor Dame Sue Bailey, who both endorse a book. And actually, even after endorsing the book, and this is, you know, if you think about the strategy, this this could be very damaging. So you get an endorsement from a book, which is in there, and then imagine those people suddenly withdraw, publicly withdraw their endorsement for you, mm, right? Yeah. So they tried to get them to do that, but luckily they held firm and they didn't do it. And then the Sunday Times journalist was alerted to all of the uh, of, of what happened and investigated and confirmed this is all what happened. In fact, during this period, the, my local hostel where I grew up, they were very proud of, you know, I was a local boy in a, you know, I grew up in a place called Tameside in Greater Manchester. 
and you know their local newspaper would always anything nationally I was doing they'd put in their local newspaper that you know our boy is Seymour Hotch is doing all this great stuff and they wanted me to come and give a keynote lecture in their hospital and they actually tried to stop me the chief executive rang the chief executive of the hospital chief executive of public health England and said you cannot let a Seymour Hotch speak so this is just so what happened was and there was a little bit of a in the end I did speak but there was something strange like they said we can't put your books in the hall but we can put them outside separately there's you know, some ridiculous things like that because of that pressure yeah but what happened is the sunday times then exposed it and the headline was and people can google it it was uh, tom watson's you know I, they quoted me as diet his diet doctor tom watson's diet doctor hit by government dirty tricks campaign yeah right so you know and and it was a really good article in the way they phrased it and these people came out in support of me but you know if they didn't have strength of character didn't really know what was going on you know, they may have got scared off and thought, okay, actually, it's not worth my while because what was apparently what they uh, threatened Andy Burnham and uh, Professor Dame Sue Bailey with um, was they saying, if you support a Seymour Hotra, it's going to damage your reputation. Yeah. And then that's the tricks that they're trying to do to undermine everything you say that goes against, basically, it goes against their profits, doesn't it? Yeah, it's very simple. I mean, I, I, I you know, uh, the the broader theme going on here, the upstream issue is that the battle we've got in health and healthcare is one of truth versus money. But also, I, I would say it's about, you know, when uh, and I mentioned this in my talk, is that people need to understand that the big, powerful corporations that have so much control on the narrative and the information people receive and give people half-truths and, and in many ways are deliberately deceiving them to make profit – they are their legal entities actually encourage them to do that because yeah. they're profit making businesses and they are protected. They have liability protection um, and uh, and essentially, you know, committing fraud in whatever way, shape or form, whether it's food industry or tobacco industry or pharmaceutical industry. Uh, for them, it's a cost of business. So they, they, they make calculations thinking, well, even if this ultimately ends up being exposed as being harmful, our product, for example, we're actually going to make more money from profit from marketing and misleading people and hammering it, you know, uh, to uh, that message. So people uptake their product. So ultimately the fines, if they, if what, if they're found out those fines for criminal activity are far smaller than the profits that they've made. So it's the cost of business. Yeah. So what does it mean? What do we do about it? Well, it means we need to change the law. I mean, if you go back a couple of hundred years, you know, certainly it's very interesting looking at uh, the, uh, when America was founded as an independent country, you know, governments were only you were chartering businesses if they produced did something uh, or produced a product that was beneficial for society. Think about that. Right now we've gone from there and not through democratic means. It's happened through stealth, through a, a Supreme Court judge basically being paid off by a company, for example, just to give you an example. What's happened gradually is we've gone from there, which actually most people would probably agree with. Right. Yes. To now you can market unhealthy products to children. Yeah. So, so, so what, where do we go? Well, we can talk about personal responsibility and all that. And of course, everyone has a role to play in, in that. But you, it's very difficult to exercise personal responsibility when you're being deceived, when the knowledge is incorrect. Um, and, um, and therefore, the roots of the problem are structural and they are in many ways legal. Uh, one of the things I mentioned in my talk, Jackie, as you know, is uh, there's a, a misperception about the um, ability of modern medicine to improve our our health and our lives. It doesn't mean modern medicine doesn't have a role. Of course, for acute illnesses, you know, we have life-saving treatments, we have antibiotics for infections, you know, 
all that kind of stuff, you know, emergency treatment for heart attack. But for the chronic diseases that are causing most of the havoc across the Western world in terms of their health, uh, most of almost all of those pills have very marginal effects of benefit. They have huge issues of side effects and it detracts from the lifestyle, um, you know, components of all of this. So uh, when you look at the evidence of uh, what's increased our lifespan in the last 150 years, we've had an average increase in lifespan of 40 years. When, when people were educated, Americans were asked in a study, how much of those 40 years do you think was because of modern medicine? The average response was 32 years. They thought 80% of our increase in life expectancy in the last 150 years was modern medicine. Wow. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's about three and a half to five years. And that's for the acute things I mentioned mainly. Yeah. Um, most of it has been public health intervention. But actually through changes in the law, Jackie. So changes in the law, historically are what has improved our health. Yeah. So, you know, it, safe uh, safe working environments, you know, people used to get killed at work because of unsafe working environments. Um, you know, smoke-free buildings, seatbelts in cars, safe drinking water. It hel- you know, crush helmets. Yeah, food that was actually is now safe to eat in the sense that it's not going to kill you acutely because of it's contaminated. Yeah, chronic, you know, chronic uh, disease driven by poor diet, of course, is a huge problem. But those sorts of things, and people don't realize that. And one of the reasons they don't realize that is because the narrative, the culture, what's been fed, you know, down our throats through mainstream media, through magazines, TV, whatever, is this idea that modern medicine is just so wonderful, that everything is related to that. And then that what that does is it affects everybody and it perpetuates policies you know, I, I, I've had I've been privileged and fortunate enough to in my journey, my advocacy work in different roles to speak to people at policy level. You know, I've been uh, invited to attend Downing Street, you know, the prime minister's house twice. I've met two secretaries for health in private meetings, one about sugar and one about, um, you know, promoting low carb diets. Um, you know, I've been on committees and, uh, of, of, of people involved in health policy. I've spoken in the European Union. And, um, and what I've realized is that those people are also human and they are also subject to the same misinformation that everybody else is. We've, right? we've grown up with and, it. And the way they get subject to that, exposed to that, is mainly through the mainstream media. Yeah. So, that, so actually, one of the routes, as I say before, I said earlier, to changing the system, and it's not easy, and I've, I've had that access over time through my writing and built that, you know, to the point where you know, over time, I'm, I, I'm now asked regularly um, to talk about various issues on mainstream media is to get that advocacy out through mainstream media. But with, you know, it has to be the right message. It has to be based upon values. It has to be based upon evidence. It has to have backing of people. And, and with most of my publications in medical journals, I have in, done my very best and, and, and successfully on many occasions to make sure that whatever I've written gets into the mainstream media because that's how you change things. Yeah, it, but but this, it seems to be that there's just you there shouting this and we need 10 of you or 20 of you to share, to, to stand up and say, I believe in this. I mean, we've got Dr. Unwin as well. He, he regularly gets on mainstream media, but most of it is, is not published in the mainstream. Yes. So how yes. and so you and you two end up being the lone doctors that are out there and and it's easy for others to say, well, they're quacks. What do they know? Yeah, I mean, I think so. One thing I would say, Jackie, is, um, you know, don't underestimate the power of the sort of truth. So even if it's one voice. So, for example, 
um, you know, my uh, the stuff I've written, you know, medical jobs, for example, have broken records that year for the number of most number of downloads. You know, British Journal Sports Medicine twice. Um, you can't outrun a bad diet. Let's bust the myth of physical bust, bust the myth of physical inactivity and obesity. If you go back about 10 years, everybody was still thinking that a whole of the obesity epidemic was most people was driven by lack of exercise. Mm -hmm. Now we've shifted the conversation, right? That was just essentially me, but with the backing of other people um, yeah. as well. Fine. I was leading on some of these issues, but there were other people involved, Jackie. But you're right. It needs um, it needs a movement. And, you know, you mentioned public health collaboration. And I think public health collaboration is a, is a brilliant platform for that movement because we've got some great people. It brings together doctors, patients, dietitians, pharmacists, other healthcare practitioners who are, you know, there because they want to change, help change the system. They are there because they are, um, uh, because they believe in the importance of doing the right thing about core values about honesty and transparency and they're not afraid you know it needs both of those things together and i think what makes public health collaboration unique is the fact that we are a charity one that doesn't get any funding from any commercial interested source you know food industry pharma but also because we are a collaboration of doctors and patients and many other charities certainly health charities don't have that kind of one the membership we've got Mm. and that collaboration so i think that we have the potential to really change the world jackie as a group yeah well i think we need to because you know that the last couple of years the health has been focused on that other thing that we don't need to mention particularly but you know there's a much bigger elephant in the room which is heart disease dementia alzheimer's cancer um type 2 diabetes strokes you know they're the six six of the top 10 biggest killers in the world in the western world particularly yet they don't get a mention i mean how many hundreds of thousands of people let's just take the uk die every year from one of those six umbrellas it's, it must be massive compared to what's been going on for the last two years but yeah, no one, absolutely, Jackie. No, no one's doing anything about it. Nobody wants 100%. to do anything I mean, I think the, the point, the other point to make is that the evidence, the science alone isn't enough, right? So the evidence may be there, um, opposition from these vested interests that want to suppress the information that's going to help these people prevent these deaths or at least allow people to have healthier lives for as long as possible. Um, that needs to be um, fought for. And that's, and, that, and yeah, you're right. It's, it's very sad, but I think that, people are waking up and people are realizing something's not right. And I think it's ultimately self-defeating for society and even for these businesses, because if your production workers are not well, they're less productive and the businesses suffer. Yeah. You know, uh, and um, you've got situations where pay differentials, for example, between the CEO of big companies and the production worker is around 300 times in terms of its difference, which is extraordinary. And then we also, and there's so much data, and I, I mentioned it briefly in my talk at the PhD conference, um, is that when you have uh, people who are in high demand, low pay, low control jobs, that's very, very damaging to their health and their morale. And of course, they're not going to be working. So it, I think we have to convince also the other side that it's in their best interest to actually help change the system so that every, so society actually benefits. Because... Um, we don't live in cocoons. We're all interdependent. I think one thing you're right, you know, it's interesting you mentioned about the last two years and what, and all the focus being on COVID and it kind of neglected in some ways the other issues. And you're right, is that COVID has highlighted actually through the lockdowns how interdependent we actually are. 
And, yeah. and hopefully this is an opportunity for people to realize that helping others, helping the community is actually helping ourselves. Yeah. But what's happened over the years as a culture is we've become more and more individualistic. You know, it's crept more. And, and a lot of that is driven by this, you know, I would say neoliberal economic capitalist model where um, there, uh, there was one school of thought thinking the markets are the solution to everything. But the problem is the markets are out of control. There's unchecked power. And if pe- I have no issue with people making money doing the right thing and giving you the right information. There's, yes, no, issue. There's no problem there. No one have a problem with that. But a lot of power, most of the power and the control even of governments is coming from these big corporations whose modus operandi, uh, modus operandi is actually a form of, of deceiving people to make money. Yes. And of course, you're going to have a negative, that, that is going to have a negative impact. Um, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out on people's um, mental, physical, social well-being. Yeah. And they sort of tried to, well, we over, I would say in my lifetime, so over the years, we've, um, we've come to be more independent and independent is seen as a good thing. But actually, we are a tribal animal and we need to be in our tribes and in our communities. We should be doing things together, not on our own. And we've, we've sort of stepped away from the nature of our, of our being, in a way. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And that has Commun- been our downfall. 100%. Uh, community is the way forward. I mean, in fact, in fact, it's a really important point you raise because when research tells us that the single biggest determinant of happiness is quality meaningful relationships. Mm. And you can't li- do that if you're living in isolation or you're more isolated from people. Um, and uh, also, and even also, e- yeah. in terms of heart health, mm. somebody who's on their own is more likely to have heart disease and heart issues than somebody who's in a family and loved and being with other people. Yeah, I mean, it's been estimated that severe loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 20 cigarettes a day. And uh, from an evolutionary perspective, having a good sense of community actually is um it's protective because it essentially mitigates against the harms of psychosocial stress and that's a big driver of disease mm. um you know i even you, you may laugh at this but i've even started prescribing to my patients some of them you know uh, to hugging i've actually said you know to some, a lot of my heart patients most of them have severe stress as a background most of them have got severe stress in the background before they had their heart attack or certainly after it and actually tell, you know, talk about relationships. And I say, you know, are you hugging your wife enough? Or are you hugging your husband enough or your loved ones? And I, and I give them this prescription of, you know, you have to hug for at least 20 seconds for 10 times a day. <laughs> right? You know, I thought yeah. you were going to laugh. But it's, no, but honestly, it's I mean, you, have to, start, you, start, no, you have to start no. thinking like that. It's really, yeah, really no. important. And, and that gets to social social prescribing. And I know that, you know, and when we talk about social prescribing, it's not very sexy because it's not a drug, right? Mm. And in your book, you know, you're starting free life, you know, actually in the in the last chapter you talk about all those interventions. So that's a really great way that you are prescribing around the social connections, around your diet, exercise, sleep, cortisols, and those sorts of things. Yeah. But I just want to bring you right back, you know, very early on in your book, you talk about one of these patients who came in and, you know, he well, you prescribed to stop taking medication for two weeks, <gasps> you know. Oh, my gosh. And that medication was the statin. And it's like, how dare you undo what he is, you know, you know, 
the, the sort of this the, the way that we think you know we're thinking about all those prescriptions that you know after a heart attack you know you have to go on your blood thinners and go on your statins and yeah. there you are you're telling them to stop because actually the medication wasn't actually doing any good so you know with the muscle soreness that 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 one and the, and he had the chest pain and he was feeling tired and fatigued and then he came in all happy <laughs> and um it's actually quite contra you know you've been going against you know you advocating in in your way you've been pushing the boundaries to to actually unprescribe to to de-prescribe or to challenge the thought by as you said let's pick up on the truth you know where the truth is out there somewhere molder um you know but that's actually something that we we are grappling with because the truth is being um, fraudulent it's being marketed it's being yeah. exploited but how does that patient i want to talk about the patient mm. coming to their doctor and yeah. going well doctor i think you're wrong you know but oh i'm doctor i'm the god i'm the font of knowledge i've been to medical school and don't confuse your google search with my medical degree mm. you know those sorts of paradigm yeah. shifts yeah, yeah, what no. can patients do yeah apart from reading your book buy your yeah. book read your book um, you know, to come and go, well, no, actually, I think this. How, how yeah. do we advocate for patients to be critical thinkers when, yeah. as you said, yeah. they're low, you know, they may not be postcode lottery. You know, they may not have the health literacy. They've, we've sure. been sold lies. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm glad you've asked this question, Louise. So before I answer it, just very quickly, um, you talk about social prescribing not being sexy, but a drug is. But what is sexy in social prescribing? Sex. Sex is sexy. You know, so we talk about, you know, doing things that are good for your health. I'm not talking about people being promiscuous, but that's part of actually healthy relationships. <laughs> so sex is sexy. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sex is sexy. <laughs> yeah. So as prescribed by Dr. Asim, sex, everybody. Yes, at least three sexy. times a day. No, no. Um, so. Uh, Along with the hugs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. A little bit of hugging, a little bit of sex. Uh, okay. <laughs> so what you've raised, Louise, is a really important point. And I think it's important to discuss it in a nuanced way. So with every patient that comes in, you know, there's a, there's a very elegant analytical and teaching framework uh, for the practice of medicine called the evidence-based medicine triad. And the triad, there are three components that are essential to improving patient outcomes. So what does improving patient outcomes mean? Let's just define that specifically. So that could be treating illness, managing risks, or relieving suffering. So what are the three components in that to get to that place? So it's the individual clinical expertise of the doctor, his experience, mm-hmm. his wisdom, his intuition as a doctor, yeah. the best available evidence on a particular drug, for example, let's say, let's talk about statins. We'll, we'll talk about statins because that's what you raised. And then last but not least, which is essential, is taking into consideration individual patient preferences and values. Okay. So that's what we should be using. Now, the reality is, um, you know, and this is not... Um, this is partly a cultural issue. It's partly a training issue is that most doctors um, are probably not fully adhering to those principles of evidence-based medicine and evidence-based medicine therefore has become an illusion and it's been, and it's been hijacked by these vested interests. But let's just break down what you said to me about this patient, say for on a statin and stopping a statin. How do I approach it in a way that is based upon evidence and ethics, right? For me, it's all every patient, right? With a management plan, What's the evidence? And am I managing them in the ethical way? And the way we do that 
in, a, in a, for example, with a statin. So you talk about a patient coming in. So, um, you know, let's say a patient is on a statin drug, which is uh, for people that don't know, that's a cholesterol lowering drug. And also is prescribed to many people for either prevention and management of heart disease. So the question then is, uh, and I always think about this with, with drugs, is for every intervention you do, you think, how much difference does it make to the patient, to their health? And then how do I know this? So in the discussion of statins, one of the most common side effects is muscle pain and fatigue. Mm. Um, and, uh, and people feel low energy. And, and obviously, that's a quite a common symptom. But that's the most common side effect from statin drugs. And it can make people feel miserable. So let's say I've, I, I had a patient coming in who was on a statin. Let's say they were on a statin. Let's say they'd had a heart attack already. Let's say they're the highest risk group. And, um, you know, they're complaining of severe muscle pain and fatigue. And I say, well, is it interfering with the quality of your life? And they say, yes. Okay, well, let's look at what could be causing it. And the first thing I always look at is the drugs. Actually, I think the default mechanism now, because we've got this massive problem with prescription with with any new symptom, the doctor and this should, you know, this is other people have said this as well. And I teach my medical students this. First of all, look at the drugs. Is this a side effect of the drugs or an interaction of the drugs? That's the first thing you should look at. And if, say, the statin is possibly the most likely cause, then what you can do is you can stop the statin. But before I do that, I explain to the, do- to the patient because, a lo- you know, fear is, can be very debilitating for people. If they're going around thinking, oh, my God, if I stop my pill, I'm going to die, etc., is actually just breaking down the information in a way that they can understand. So that's what we call transparent communication of risk. And that is an essential component of evidence-based medicine, medical practice, mm. the, the patient preference and values. So what does that mean? Well... If you've had a heart attack, then we know from the industry-sponsored trials, which we know is likely biased um, in terms of the way that they are conducted and the way that people without side of, with side effects are taken out, et cetera. So what I tell my patients, and I, I explain this because also part of this is explaining uncertainties with, with treatments and anything we do, even dietary interventions, is to say, listen, the likelihood is best case scenario if you take this pill religiously every day for the next five years, there's a one in 39 chance it will save your life or delay your death. And one in 83 chance it'll prevent you having a further heart attack or a non-fatal heart attack. And that's what the evidence tells us. And that's irrefutable. Okay, that's what we call absolute risk reduction. Now, most doctors don't have that conversation with patients. And that's part of an issue of training and culture. Okay, so, so I've been doing my bit to try and shift that. And in the medical royal colleges have backed it. And I wrote a paper in the BMJ called Choosing Wisely, um, the Academy, Academy of Medical Royal Colleges Initiative to wind back that to harms of too much medicine. So I coordinated a campaign with the BMJ medical royal colleges. So the reason I'm saying that is people can Google it and look it up and read it. So that's already been, yeah, sorry. I was just going to mention that. So that's the numbers needed to treat. And there is a yes. website for that that people yes. can go mm-hmm. and look at. Numbers need to treat. In fact, there's a website. Which I'm glad you, you've asked, you mentioned that, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, Jackie. So there's a website called thent.com. Yeah. And that's put together by independent scientists. They're, all their reviews go through peer review through and, and published in the, I think, one of the um, American family physician journals. And they break down lots of different interventions for patients to understand. So it's about patient important outcomes. And they break down the numbers so people can look at a different intervention, whether it's for treatment of blood pressure or diabetes or whatever. So in that, that's the statin. So, okay, that's over a five-year period. So I'll say to the patient, well, actually, and I published on this, even in that situation, worst case scenario, the risk of them dying from stopping a statin for a couple of weeks. And the reason I would stop it for a couple of weeks is mostly the side effects. If it is a statin disappear within a couple of weeks is in the order of one in 10,000. Okay. I'm still yet to see a patient where that's happened. And I, I think it's probably even less likely than that. And the reason for that is those trials that were conducted to show benefit were mainly in people, almost certainly people who didn't get side effects. 
Mm. Therefore, people with genuine side effects, if it's a genuine side effect, you can argue the case, and I wrote about in Statin Free Life, you can make a case, I'm not saying it's necessarily the correct, uh, correct one, but I can, you can make a case saying that if you get a side effect that's genuine because of a drug, the drug itself is having no benefit for you. Yeah. Therefore, the numbers you treat is infinity. Okay, So you can make that case, and I've done that before. So I have that discussion with patients. I explain it to them and say, listen, this is what I think, and th we can do this. Or if you don't want to stop the drug altogether, we can lower the dose and see what happens. So that's the way to approach it, um, Louise. And it's completely ethical and evidence-based. And no one, you know, I, I write, I, I do this all the time. I mean, I've, I've probably managed in my career well over 20,000 patients. I mean, the NHS, you know, we have, we have the least number of doctors per capita population in Europe. And, you know, it's very intense work. And, uh, you know, I've managed many, many patients. I've got a lot of experience in this area. And certainly with statins, I've been doing this with statins and uh, for, for many, many years, probably a good, I would say about 10 years, really, um, you know, this sort of management plan. I've never had anything come back to me untoward. In fact, if anything, these patients, these stories, which I write about in my book, are extraordinary. There are people that, you know, feel that they were, mis you know, were literally in misery for months and months and months, didn't even realize it was statin. They stopped their statin and they feel like a new person again. Yeah. And that's the and, difference. And that was obviously. Sorry, go on, Liz. And, and that was really the story that you were, you, you know, the case study in, in the book was really about how that patient came back to you. And he was obviously so happy. It improved his mental health. It, you know, he wasn't no longer feeling fatigued. He was no longer having these chest pains. But after obviously having a heart attack and he was receiving the standard of care, but the evidence, the evidence was, as you presented so elegantly in your book, is that it's only going to extend his life for four days but the marketing is that you know here is a standard of care here is here it is on a platter that this is you know the holy grail but yet the evidence as you said you know in terms of the absolute risks and the relative risks is four days mm. why why are we sold this could, actually could you go into as well what about the difference between relative risk and absolute risk for the listeners? Yeah, so um, relative risk basically depends on your baseline risk. So let's say you have a, um, a drug that gives you, so you have a randomized control trial to look at the differences between the benefit, a drug and the placebo. And let's just say your risk of having a stroke without any treatment is say uh, one in 500, okay? And if you then um, do the trial and uh, the risk, you know, instead of one in 500 people having a stroke, so let me, let me, yeah, instead of one in 500 people having a stroke, it becomes uh, one in a thousand, all right? So you've actually reduced the risk by about 50%. But the absolute risk reduction is only one in 500. You've only saved one in 500 people. Mm. So that's the difference. It's relative risk and absolute risk. And, it, and relative risk exaggerates the benefits. And an absolute risk um, is actually a more honest way of people understanding the benefit of treatment for them. Yeah, which we're not, which the drug companies don't push. No. So in fact, actually, it's very interesting. I won't name this drug company, but I give a, a talk on this many, many years ago at one of the universities that I was invited to give a keynote talk at. And I didn't realize that one of the members of the audience was a very, very senior, um, was formerly uh, a very senior executive in one of the world's biggest drug companies. 
And uh, he approached me afterwards and he was very positive because he'd left that company. He wasn't happy with the ethical way that they were doing things. And he said, he said to me, Asim, you do realize that it wasn't academics that came up with relative risk. It was the drug companies and that's how they market their products. Mm. It was never done by academics. Yeah. So, so, so what, so that's another thing. I mean, on, on terms of changing the law, it, it should become illegal to just market any drug on relative risk. It should be illegal. Medical journals also report things in relative risk. They might want to put relative risk in there, fine, but it, it has to have absolute risk in there. And I'm not the only person that says that. So uh, Gerdge Gerenza, who was then the, the director of the Max Planck Institute in Berlin for health literacy in the world. I mean, he's a world leading researcher, if you like, or one of the most eminent ones in health literacy and statistical literacy. He said in the World Health Organization Bulletin 2009, it's an ethical imperative that every doctor and patient understand the difference between absolute risk and relative risk to protect patients from unnecessary anxiety and manipulation. Yeah, absolutely. That's there, but we need to fight for this inf information to be disseminated and to be part of the culture and practice. And even though I've got medical oncologists on board, this is a campaign that needs sustainability. It needs medical schools to teach doctors about this. It needs to be something that becomes the default. And the way to do that is, is the best way to do that is through legal means. But how are we going to change the law if the people behind the law are these big food and drug companies? That... Well, no, I think that, well, that's a good point. I think um, we have to fight for that because I think the evidence in itself is very strong. It just has to get to the right people mm. and it needs people, advocates for it. It needs lawyers to say, listen, this is the whole informed consent process is almost non-existent in many ways and we need to improve it. So that's how it happens. I also think it gets back to that sort of medical curriculum. I think that, that sort of colonisation of those ideas begins in the classroom. And, you know, it doesn't, I think when we have the wounded healer, you know, like yourself, you know, you're the son of GPs, you know, you've seen and lived that experience of your brother, your parents, your, your grandfather, that that wounded healer experience then sort of, you know, helps to translate and inform because you've through reflection, through yeah. reflective practice. But it's really getting back to the AMC, you know, or the, you know, the BMC, you know, in terms of the curricula, it, that colonisation of those ideas begins in the classroom and we need to decolonise a lot of yes. those ideas around, as you said, patients are responsible. No, it's it's the village that raises, you know, raises the child. The village needs to raise that and we do need that systemic institutional um you know access improving and access and barriers and you know through those legal means but it, it really begins with obviously healthcare education you know we yes. need to decolonize a lot of those ideas that we push back on the patient but it's your responsibility how do you not know about that well i'm sorry postcode lottery um you know Yes, no, absolutely. Uh, mm. There needs to be a cultural shift in medicine. And in fact, the, a lot of the stuff I'm talking about, um, many doctors are unaware. They don't, they don't routinely, because it's not rocket science, you know, relative absolute risk reduction. It's not rocket science. You know, it's, it's basic, basic maths. I mean, and, and also uh, explaining to patients in a way they can understand that is, it, it, you know, evidence tells us that that is, that is the best way uh, and the most honest way. You know, there is a one in a hundred chance, for example. Most most people can understand what that means. There's a hundred of you and we give a hundred of you this drug, one of you will benefit, but we don't know who. Uh, and, mm. and that's, and then, you know, ask them, do you want to take this pill? You know, and, and patients will come back with different preferences on that information. Some of them may, may think that's, uh, that's pretty good. Some of them may think, oh, that's not very good. And that's when you then, you know, that's about taking into consideration the patient preference, individual patient preferences and values rather than saying, 
you must do this. Of course, some of them will say, I'm not sure, doc. What do you think? And then, of course, then it's left to the doctor. But we have to at least give them that option of deciding for themselves first rather than kind of coercing them to taking a pill. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that we know is that the NHS is at a breaking point almost. I'd say broken. It's broken, not breaking point. It's broken. Okay. When, when emergency care can't manage to get to heart attack patients in time when they die, then the NHS is broken. It's broken, not, not yep. breaking point. Yeah, and that's very true because I, well, a friend of mine was in A&E for 11 hours and um, just laid out on the floor, basically, because there was no beds for her. Um, the government has to... F- so we're talking now because there's a difference in America where it's where it's a more funded um, healthcare system to ours, and in a way, what Australian is fairly similar, isn't it? But also, oh, Australia, Australia has has a universal healthcare system similar to um, your NHS. I would say America is privately funded, so a lot more privately funded as opposed to publicly funded. So okay. yeah, but. Here in the UK, Canada, Australia, we've got this government-funded healthcare system. You would think that it would make sense for the government to be interested in saving on costs and the money that they spend on treating people. But we know big pharma and big food don't want them, don't want the change. They have a huge influence. So how do we get around that? How do we get around the politicians to start to understand that there is things that we can do. And again, it's come through these last 60 years of brainwashing that we've all received about, um, you know, just not only statins, but seed oils and all the food things that we, we all know that are not good for us. How do we get around that? In, and is it just getting around the politicians? Do we need to get to politicians whose pockets aren't lined by big food and big pharma? How does this work? Yeah, um, I think it's about getting the information to them and explain to them that it's in the best interests of the population and in their best interest to do the right thing. Um, but, you know, what's interesting is, and I uh, I speak to politicians all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky to have built a network over the years of people on, on different parts of the political spectrum. and I can just WhatsApp them anything, essentially. Uh, and they trust me, uh, you know, so... Um, I spoke recently to a very senior politician about exactly this, uh, and he told me as well that, and this is true through lobbying, what happens is um, a lot of these politicians and their, you know, their advisors are only getting half of the information, but they believe that's the complete information, mm. and then they're acting on that, uh, and I think it's just making them aware, and one of the things is also making, I, I think a lot of these politicians don't really fully understand you know, the the issue of these corporations and how they operate and their track record is bad and they commit fraud. They don't know that, you see. So they're also trusting the information they're giving, getting, yeah. getting. So how do, you know, most, a lot of these politicians, and I know them, they get a lot of their information as well about whether a drug's effective or whatever else through mainstream media. And obviously mainstream media can also shape public opinion. So it's kind of like a, a it can be a vicious cycle and that has to be broken and it, it has to come from a place of evidence values. And, and, and it's not easy, but I actually think most people want to do the right thing. So it's about arguing the case and why it's actually in everyone's best interest that we do this in this way. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really hard. I, you know, I, I, I feel like it's, we're banging our heads against a brick wall in the sense that we know that it's got to come from the grassroots, from the people to say that. But we, we need to be able to reach the people to say, 
you need to make a change. You need to stand up for yourself. You need to ask what is the number to treat for this drug. Yes. You need to be asking the questions, but yeah, it's all very challenging. Well, people, people have more power than they realize, but it's about galvanizing it as a group because ultimately, you know, we are, they are few and we are the many. When I say they are the few, these private interest people who are profiting from, from nonsense, um, are at, although they have a lot of power, in terms of numbers, they're much, much smaller. So, you know, it's about also galvanizing the social movement, you know, through public health collaboration, for example, is a great uh, way of doing that on the grassroots. But we also need to address uh, the political politicians at the same time. And if we can, the way to maximize that impact, both for the social movement and for the politician, again, is through the mainstream media, is getting that information out there and 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 hitting um you know um hitting them hard with information that is going to shape their opinion um towards doing the right thing yeah so we're coming to the end of our time dr seem is there anything else that you'd like to bring up before we wrap up no i think people just need to keep hope um for a better future i know it's very difficult at times we've had a horrible couple of years with lockdowns people have lost loved ones either to covid or to other reasons um, related to lockdowns and, and certain policies. And it, and it can be very, very disheartening. Um, I've lost both my parents in the last few years, um, you know, and uh, it's been very, very tough. But I, for me, I want to use that in a positive way. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and it does take, you know, just remember that you don't underestimate the power of, of your speech and the power of truth and the power to make a difference. And don't leave it to somebody else. You know, we all have a role to play. It does take some courage and it does mean thinking about, you know, ancient wisdom teaches us to have the good and happy life. We have to act according to a number of virtues. You know, Socrates talks about wisdom, courage, justice, piety and moderation. But of all the virtues, courage is the most important because without courage, you can't practice any of the other virtues consistently. Mm. And for people with kids, you've got to, you know, one of the things my dad said to me, which, which I loved, he said, when... Um, when your child hears the word fairness, when your child hears the word honesty, when, the, when your child hears the word justice, the first thing that should come into their mind is you, mm. their parent, right? Yeah. So I think this, we have to just think like that. Um, and, and again, uh, it's not just about our lives now. It's also about creating a, fu- a better future for our kids and staying silent when the world is burning around you and not acting when you should act makes us part of the problem uh, and we need to be part of the solution yes you inspired me in your talk at the phc <laughs> that i've got to speak out more and not be afraid and you know. and, and support each other even you know even just supporting each other you know that having each other's backs i think is still very important for that movement yeah definitely. well i'm sure that manchester grammar you know who inspired you dared to be wise and I think also your parents because I think you, you've got you in your book you talk a lot about you know your parents really in terms of their practice you know inspiring you and advocating you know that for altruism and vocation that you are here now um, advocating for the community to to dare to speak up and to challenge and to, to think critically you know, and that's really, you know, you should be really proud of the advocacy work that you are doing and inspiring through the, the PHC, which is really why we would like your three top tips, please. Okay. Three top tips for, for people's health, for individual health, yeah? 
Okay, so um, again, uh, probably speaking to the converted here, but I think the what for people that haven't aren't fully entwined with this uh, yet, I would say eat real food. <laughs> that would be my one of my top tips. Yeah. Um, I think spend more time with people that increase your sense of well-being. You know, stay away from toxic people. Um, minimize your time on social media, obviously, except for this podcast. And uh, <laughs> but when I say social media, I think people need to realize that the algorithms that have been created from from these social medias, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, are actually designed or to increase engagement. And one of the ways they increase engagement is to create hostility. So the net effect, unfortunately, I think social media can do a lot of good things and needs to be reformed. The net effect for many, if not most people of social media actually is a negative one on mental health. So that'd be my second top tip is minimize your social media time. And even if it means, you know, what I do is I switch my phone off about three hours before going to bed. It annoys some people because like, they get a single tick and it's like, where were you at eight o'clock last night? I know I switched my phone off. I didn't want to, you know. So that may be one in, in, in relation to that is, um, and you get a better sleep probably because of it. And then what would be my third top tip? My third top tip is try and do something every day, which gives back to the community in some way, shape or form. Even if it's sending a message, a positive message to somebody or writing something positive, just try and always think about doing something that puts other people in front of yourself. And that in its, in its own, in its own, uh, through its own way, will come back to you. You put, you put good out into the world, good will come back to you. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So how can people contact you if they want to or find out more about you? Yeah, so I, I'm on, obviously I'm on, I'm on, I mean, so don't, I'm on social go, media. Okay, I'll get off social media. Uh, so I have a website, drasim.com. Um, if people want consultations, they can find out through there if they want to see me privately or I do Zoom consults, that kind of thing. Um, just so you know, I mean, I'm, I ultimately, I, you know, I, I practice what I preach and over medication is a big, big area. So for me, it's about shared decision making. It's about making sure people actually are going to save money, not spend more money. Um, and uh, I don't organize lots of unnecessary tests or anything like that. You know, we, my knowledge is pretty good in cardiology and I can break things down for them in a way they can understand and also advise them on lifestyle. Um, and then uh, if people are still obviously wanting to see what I'm doing on social media, then my Twitter handle is Dr. Asim Alhotra, Instagram's Lifestyle Medicine Doctor, and Facebook is Asim Alhotra. But uh, yeah, that's probably the, the, the best ways for people to get in touch with me. Brilliant. And we'll include that all that in the show notes. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank, thank you. you so much. And thank you for having me. Well, Jackie, two years waiting for Dr. Asim. It was pretty, pretty special that we actually got to really hear um, his role as a public health advocate. Yeah. And that seems to be where he's really focusing his energy now on really getting the message out there as much as possible. And I know he's been on the internet type media places quite a lot recently. Yeah. And anywhere, any time that you sort of you see his social media feed, then he's always, as he was listing in, you know, you listed his intro on, you know, the BBC, he's in print, he's in media. I, you know, I really am hopeful for the traction that he's getting, uh, the recognition of his advocacy role and really, you know, trying to get that policy changed. Mm. 
I still worry about his life. You know, I just think all of a sudden people just die or supposedly commit suicide and things like that that are really strange. And yeah, I worry. I worry about him. There's a few people I worry about when they speak out like this against the norm, against the accepted norm by everybody. It is concerning. Yeah. It is a concern, and, and we've seen obviously the the stress of both the personal and the professional on on previous podcast guests when we had uh, Professor Tim Noakes, I think episode fifty six, fifty six, fifty six, and also um, Australian, you know, Dr. Gary Fetke. So we have heard obviously the impacts professionally, personally, on you know being such very public educators and advocates for change mm, yeah and dr carrie fecky was episode 74 and another one i think which is important to mention is is his wife belinda who was episode 58 and so she actually spoke more about um gary's turmoil that he went through than gary did himself so but yeah that i'm i'm just so honored that one, we get to speak to them, but that we know of them even to be standing up for us and for our health where so many others are not. And I know where we're talking about advocacy and that's really the role, I suppose, for in as a doctor, as an interventional cardiologist, and he's really advocating for, you know, the heart health and the food systems, you know, in the prevention of obviously type 2 diabetes particularly and obesity related disorders which you can hear the frustration you know he knows that things need to change and you know one is obviously public education and obviously education of health professionals and you know that that's obviously looking like Belinda did you know where those interests lay yeah and I think you mentioned that one of the thing in the interview you mentioned that one of the things that needs it needs to come from is education but I think we also need to remember we heard from Belinda is that a lot of the uh, medical education is funded by the big pharmaceutical companies and the big food industry so we have to sort of bear that in mind that we're not yes it needs to come from education but it's not going to come from the places that are influenced by these big industries where they have no they have no willingness to change because it, as Dr. Asim mentioned, it affects their profits and their responsibility is to give a, a return to their shareholders. Shareholder. It's not about our health. It's not about us improving. And I think I know Jackie, we were sort of just talking, you know, about home economics, you know, back in the day when we went to school and, you know, we were learning how to cook. And I don't know if you had this when your boys were were at school and having to learn, obviously, about health and, you know, nutrition. And that's obviously part of that education is really trying to provide a balance to, you know, in the UK with the eat well plate, you know, and that's part of the, the frustration that we have is when we're looking for being critical consumers and, you know, being critical of what the information messages that we get, which is mm. hard, as you're saying, because yeah. it is obviously not independent. It's not independent. And 
it's taught to these children from very young age when they're taking on everything that they will believe it to be true. I remember my kids coming home with maybe it was the eat well plate or whatever it was called at that time. And I just remember saying to them, that's rubbish. Do not believe that. And I wasn't even keto at the time. I hadn't even, I didn't even know half the things I know now, but I just knew that it wasn't right. And I said, you know, that's what they're telling you, but it's not true. Mm. So, and it must be hard, you know, getting those mixed messages. So, yeah. And they're still getting the mixed messages. (laughs) (laughs) Your boys are doing well, though. They've, they have become quite, you know, they're they're young men and they they can make up their own mind and you know mostly that they they make good choices yeah not so much nowadays not so much <laughs> but we shall see that at, at home you know at least at home they're getting good food and not loads of crap so oh can i say that yes it's because <laughs> it's processed it's processed so it's you know highly highly processed foods that's what the crap stands for okay <laughs> so jackie where can we get the show notes for this episode so the show notes can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash one zero zero congratulations to us yeah so should this be like saying happy anniversary jackie (laughs) (laughs) i don't know we've got our two-year anniversary coming up soon Oh, that'll be another special occasion. So, yeah, I, I'm expecting. But you know, first anniversary is paper. The second one must be a diamond. So, thanks, Jackie. I hope it turns <laughs> away. <laughs> it would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto, and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. 
Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.